Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On our program today, vaccine anxiety. These are safe and effective vaccines, and I wouldn't hesitate to take the AstraZeneca vaccine tomorrow. Should Canada examine the safety of a critical vaccine after its use is suspended temporarily in more than nine countries? Is AstraZeneca safe, and are the variants of concern poised to kickstart a dangerous third wave? Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, joins us today. And then, delayed delivery. We have signed uh, significant contracts for uh, tens of millions of doses that will be arriving in the coming months. Uh, and we are confident that, uh, that there will not be interruptions to those vaccines. How long will the arrival of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine be delayed? And when will Canada change its vaccine target timelines? The Procurement Minister, Anita Anand, joins us today. Plus, opening up. We're ready to go. We've got clinics that are re literally ready to open uh, today. How soon will cities open up as the vaccine rollout ramps up? Will you lose another summer to COVID? The Mayor of Toronto, John Tory, joins us and so does the Premier of New Brunswick, Blaine Higgs. All that plus big spending. The pandemic bill is also ramping up and the Liberals' first budget in two years promises even more. Is that the right answer? We'll calculate the rolling costs of a year of the pandemic with the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux. This is question period. Let's go get some answers. One year, one year of lockdowns and restrictions, a year of watching seniors die inside long-term care homes, a year of schools closed, a year of loved ones missed, of businesses shutting down, of closed borders. It's hard to believe more than a year has passed since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. Of course, everything has changed. And even as the great hope of the vaccines arrives, it's a miracle of science, and we should never forget that there's a very long and bumpy road ahead, especially with the threat of the new variants of concern. So is a third wave coming? And just how serious are the new concerns about the safety of vaccines like AstraZeneca? Let's find out. Joining me now is Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam. Dr. Tam, great to have you on the program as we mark just past one year of this global pandemic. And Canadians are have great hope in the vaccine, but there's concern about, obviously, the AstraZeneca vaccine and safety. Denmark, Iceland, I think a total of nine countries have temporarily suspended that vaccine because of issues of blood clots. I know Italy recently uh, banned a batch, citing adverse effects. Will Canada re-examine the safety of the AstraZeneca vaccine in light of these concerns? Well, Health Canada, our regulator, constantly monitors the vaccine uh, from a safety perspective. So this is just ongoing. They've been in close touch with the European uh, regulators and other countries, such as the United Kingdom. Uh, what we uh, found out, uh, what the regulators have found out, is that, uh, that it, right now doesn't seem like the vaccine is the cause of these events, but that these events tempor temporarily just follows the vaccination. So that, that's the information we have so far, but we're monitoring really carefully. And just remember, the UK has used over 11 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine and have seen nothing that's above what might expect as a background rate for these kind of uh, blood clotting events. Okay, so, so for Canadians, they're saying, okay, but you know, Norway and Denmark, these are serious countries. They, they've stopped it. Um, how do we know the batches that we're getting are safe? 
Well, we do not have uh, in this country any of the lots or batches that they are receiving. Um, our current supply comes from the Syrian Institute of India, an entirely different supply. But we also have to look more broadly as the AstraZeneca vaccine in general, and we haven't detected any uh, safety signal of concern. And as the um, vaccine, the same vaccines or similar vaccines are deployed in Canada, we're watching this every day. So I'm just going to ask you, if you said, Dr. Tam, you're going to get the AstraZeneca today, would you take it? Absolutely. I will have no hesitation. Uh, the, you know, the, it depends on uh, if it's my turn and if it's tomorrow, and uh, I will take whichever vaccine is provided to me in my local clinic. The other question is the, the, the change of protocol for dose usage, that Canada is now moving uh, to four months between the first and second doses uh, for, Astra, for not only AstraZeneca, but for Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, companies like Pfizer say, look, we're advising 21 days, that there is no data that shows that the vaccine will still be effective then. Uh, why did Canada move to that, and are you uh, assured that this is not only safe, but that these vaccines will still be as effective? So the National Advisory Committee on Immunization provided that recommendation for a number of reasons. The key is the actually really great effectiveness of that first dose. So there's the, the companies, when they look at the clinical trial data, that is set according to the protocol that they uh, used in the clinical trials. But there's much more real-time, real-life data um, being supplied, including from uh, British Columbia and, and Quebec. So two months out, the vaccine is very effective. So at that point in time, your immunity isn't going to precipitously fall uh, the next day. So when they projected how that is going to go, um, it is uh, predicted that even four months out, your immunity right. is not going to wane. And by the way, because of this danger of resurgence, uh, if um, people let go of some of these measures, it's really important to get that first dose, effective dose, to as many people as fast as possible. Okay, uh, the, the big question is we're not sure there's data, but I guess we need it, as you say, to give some partial immunity. But it does sort of raise this next question, Dr. Tam, as the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued new guidelines last week for vaccinated Americans. You know, you can, if you've got both shots and you've waited the proper amount of time, you can visit with family. When will Canada issue new guidelines? Because we've got 590,000 Canadians who've had two doses. Even my parents got the first shot, thank goodness, uh, in the past week. But no one knows, can they, when can they hug their grandkids if the grandkids haven't had it? So what, what, once you've had the shots, can you stop wearing a mask? Can you hug your grandkids? Can you hug your family? Well, I think that um, you know, Canada is uh, only just starting uh, accelerating its vaccine program. So as I said, getting as many people as possible vaccinated is the key. And so, but it is important to have a look at, well, what happened, what, what about long-term care homes that have now got a lot of uh, yeah. uh, vaccinations in? So in discussion with other the chief medical officers of health, that we will be looking at that and say, well, what's the safe way now that uh, so many people got vaccinated of making sure that our seniors are not isolated? And so those will be uh, forthcoming, but it's really important right now to keep up with the masking and the distancing because of the vir virus variants, et cetera. But, but it is important, and healthcare workers, for example, who've received two doses by now in that first quarter, those were our priority groups, um, there will be a relook at what the policies are pertaining to them as so, well. So, so what is, I'm just trying to, I mean, when will that happen? Because you, close to 600,000 Canadians have had the second dose. 
can they, for example, if they hug their loved one who hasn't had a dose, can they asymptomatically transfer it to someone? Uh, or can they just kind of, uh, we're safe now, we've had the vaccine, we're going to function normally, come and come over for dinner? Well, for now, um, keep up with those precautions because there's two reasons. One is that if you got vaccinated, um, it's never 100%. So keeping up with some of these personal protective layers is still important. Can you transmit to someone else if you're vaccinated? Um, that we don't know yet. But there's more and more uh, data that shows that it's quite likely that those who are vaccinated are less likely to transmit. But that data is forthcoming. So just hang on tight for a bit um, and uh, that data will come. But I do think that uh, a lot of the, um, you know, relaxation of some of these measures are not just because of the vaccine, is how, how the epidemic is going in the community. If you have very low transmission, if you can control transmission, there's a lot more that we can uh, do right. in terms of resuming activity. Well, well, well let, and that'll be interesting if, you know, 80% of Canadians are 16 and up get it by, by the end of June, uh, we'll wonder about the reopening. Just before I let you go, Doc, we're a year after this pandemic was declared by the WHO. Um, close to 23,000 Canadians have lost their lives. Uh, and I know you've been working tirelessly with so many frontline workers. What, tell me, if you could, what, was your, what has been the worst moment for you um, and, and what have been your fundamental lessons learned? Well, I think the uh, tragedy and the massive lesson learned for everyone in Canada is that we were uh, at every level um, not able to protect our seniors, particularly those in the long-term care homes. And even worse is that in that second wave, as we warned of the uh, resurgence, uh, there was a repeat of the uh, huge impact on that population. And so what is, of course, then become much more positive is when the vaccines arrived, everybody agreed that we need to prioritize that vaccine right. uh, for those settings. So that's the positive side of things. But that will uh, be forever etched in our collective memory is how we failed the most vulnerable uh, people in our society, not just seniors, racialized populations, women, and people in congregate, uh, sort of crowded housing. Right. So, so that, that is the biggest lessons learned. Yeah, and there's lessons to be learned as we, uh, we still deal with this. Uh, Dr. Teresa Tam, always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing it this morning. It's a pleasure, thank you. Coming up, vaccine troubles. When will Canada actually get the coveted one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine after it was recently approved? And is the United States holding up the AstraZeneca vaccine? The procurement minister, Anita Nan, joins us on that and lots more. Stay right here with Question Period. None of the vaccines uh, that we have uh, been contracted for or promised to Canadians uh, have been blocked either by the European Union uh, or by, by the United States. Here we go again. Look, with the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines finally pouring in at rates that will be close to a million a week, there are now new concerns about delays for two other approved products. Johnson & Johnson, the one-shot vaccine that was just approved, has had some production issues. But there's still no word from the government as to when it will arrive or where Canada is going to get it from. There are now also new concerns about the 20 million doses of AstraZeneca Canada has purchased that are being manufactured in the United States. Will those be held up? 
Let's find out about that as we mark just past one year of the declaration of the pandemic with the Minister of Procurement, Anita Anand. Minister, always a pleasure to have you back on the program. Can we just start with this Johnson & Johnson because Canada has um, purchased 10 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson. Prime Minister talked about a delay. What is the delay issue and is there a date when we'll know they will arrive in Canada? Uh, relating to J&J, &J, of course, uh, the one-shot vaccine, which was approved. Uh, and we have 10 million doses of J&J &J coming into this country in the second quarter and the third quarter of this year. And we are in discussions with J&J &J now. I have asked them for a delivery schedule, recognizing that we are coming up upon the month of April where the second quarter starts. And I have reiterated that Canada needs a delivery schedule so that the provinces and territories can do Great. their planning with the Public Health Agency of Canada. Okay, so so they, they haven't given you a delivery schedule. They sh they're set to come at least in April, so, but we don't know when. Do you know what factory they're coming from? Will it be the U.S. factory, a European factory? Um, and, and those delays, are the delays related to production or are they related to country of origin? Well, it's a good question, and the production of the J&J &J vaccine, to my knowledge, is actually occurring in multiple countries, a portion of it, uh, of course, occurring in Europe and the U.S., and we are still uh, ironing out the details of precisely where that vaccine is going to be coming from uh, with the company. Okay. Um, I want to talk about AstraZeneca. Um, I know we've received some of the AstraZeneca products from the Serum Institute in India, but can, the vast majority of our product, the 20 million doses, is coming from a U.S. factory. We understand that the U.S. has produced closing in on 30 million doses of it. A lot of those doses are still sitting in a factory. Now, the U.S. hasn't approved it. Will those be shipped to Canada, and, and if so, when? Because there's concerns that the U.S. may hold them back. Well, thanks uh, again for raising this important question. Uh, I want to indicate right off the bat that this is an issue that I have already raised uh, with the Biden administration in my discussions with them. And of course, we are entitled to 20 million AstraZeneca doses already that will be coming from the United States in Q2 and Q3. But on the subject of these additional AstraZeneca doses uh, that you're referring to, uh, I am in close touch with Ambassador Hillman, and we together are engaged with the U.S. administration on this very issue. Okay, but you're, I'm intrigued that you're engaged because the U.S. has not yet shipped a single dose of any vaccine outside their own borders, right? They are practicing vaccine nationalism. And as you know, on Friday, the uh, chief official in the Biden administration said that um, they will not ship any of the AstraZeneca vaccines to the EU until uh, America approves it and they use theirs. Is that the concern here that you're waiting for the U.S. to approve those doses that we've bought and also for the Americans to maybe use them first? Well, our negotiations are proceeding as well with our own supplier, AstraZeneca, uh, re regarding our 20 million doses that we have under our bilateral engagement. And 
everything that we have heard uh, from our suppliers that they fully be expect to be able to ship those doses to Canada in Q2 and Q3. And then we'll continue to be engaged with the Biden administration with regards to those other AstraZeneca doses that you are referring to. Right. But, but what is it? Again, though, these are the 20, this is the vast majority of AstraZeneca. And I, I just want to just press on this. What has the Biden administration actually told you? Because have they said, look, we ain't going to deliver vac AstraZeneca vaccines outside our borders until we're all done. The, Joe Biden was talking about July. Uh, is that the case? Are they saying we may hold back those AstraZeneca vaccines that you're expecting from that U.S. factory? Have they said I that? I personally have not been told that, Evan, and indeed our discussions are ongoing and my work every single day is to accelerate doses from one quarter to the next, and that is exactly why we upped our doses to 8 million last week because we were able to press Pfizer on this. Mr. the U.S. has moved up their target vaccination timeline. You know, Joe Biden's talking about barbecues on July 4th. Um, there have... You know, your government continues to stick to this target of uh, every Canadian who wants one by the end of September. But, you know, every time you and I talk, we're getting more doses. We're beating the, uh, the deadline in March, the target date in March, and more are coming. When will your government formally change the target date for all Canadians who want a vaccine can get one? Will it be moved uh, earlier than September? Well, let me just focus on the first part of your question, Evan, which I really like. Yes, more and more doses are coming into this country. 8 million by the end of March, 36.5 million by the end of June, and then prior to the end of September, 118 million doses. So you're right in terms of vaccines coming into this country at an accelerated pace. Uh, in terms of the timeline, I, as you know, am cautious about moving timelines up. Why? Because we have come through a rough period during the early part of 2021. We're watching supply chains very carefully. And I want to make sure that those deliveries are coming into this country in order to ensure that the timelines we are setting are realistic. And so, indeed, we're watching these supply chains, but we're also counting on millions and millions of vaccines coming into this country. Well, we hope those timelines move up. Mr. Nand, always good to have you on the program. You know, here we are uh, a year after the uh, pandemic was declared. Long road ahead, but there's some hope at the end of the tunnel here. Thanks, Minister. Lots of work ahead, Evan. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right, that is Minister Anand joining us. Coming up, more on mass vaccinations. Are provinces and cities ready to ramp up their vaccination process? The Mayor of Toronto, John Tory, and the Premier of New Brunswick, Blaine Higgs, joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Increase uh, in deliveries after next week. Pfizer-BioNTech will be delivering doses to Canada ahead of schedule. This means that starting March 22nd, we will now receive over 1 million doses of Pfizer-BioNTech weekly through April. The need for speed is real. Provinces and cities are going to have to rapidly ramp up the vaccination process in order for 80% of Canadians to get one dose of a vaccine before the end of June, as the National Advisory Committee on Immunization claims is possible. And provinces like Ontario have made that a target. Is it possible? Well, the vaccines are coming now. How fast should cities open up, given the rising threat of the variants of concern? So there's lots of questions facing the big cities. And to talk about those, we're joined now 
by the mayor of Toronto, Mayor John Tory. Great to have you on the program, sir. Let, let me just start with this vaccine rollout as we're into the vaccine deluge now. When will these mass sites uh, be open for people? And I know pharmacies are open, but these mass vaccination sites, and, and will you encourage them to be vaccinating 24-7? Well, uh, the encouraging thing is that uh, we're already at 27 clinics and we've had those going for some time. We've done uh, 200 and some odd thousand uh, inoculations already. But the answer to your question is we're ramping up uh, and uh, three things uh, have to happen or have happened. The, the registration system that allows people to schedule uh, opened up on Friday and, has been, and is open now over the weekend and thousands of people have already signed up. Uh, then early in the week, we get a shipment of vaccine, which is, of course, the one thing that has to happen. Uh, and then on Wednesday, we opened the first three of our mass immunization clinics. Uh, and we've had these 27 clinics going in hospitals and different places in the community before now. But the mass immunization clinics, of which there will be nine and the other six are ready to go. But we're opening these first three and that will allow us to uh, take bookings for uh, actually over the next month, 133,000 uh, registrations for people 80 plus, And we'll get on with putting needles in those arms, supply willing, uh, on Wednesday. Okay, so now the supply is coming and, you know, the federal government saying there's going to be ramping up of supplies uh, because of that. Will you be able to vaccinate 24-7? Will any of the sites run like that? Again, it's going to be totally dependent upon supply because what we don't want to do is have, say, these nine clinics and all the other ones. We're operating mobile clinics. We've got hospital-based clinics. We've got other community-based clinics. So right now in Toronto, there are already, including the pharmacies, about 300 places that are active. What we don't want to do is, is have you know, a number of places operating 24-7 and then find that constraints and supply to somewhere else So because um, you have to have supply on hand to, yeah. to accommodate for a 24-7 operation. So we've not ruled it out, but the task force that is advising us and helping us implement this has said that we will look at implementing a 24-7 or expanded hours uh, if uh, the supply is adequate to do so. Are you worried about some confusion, clarity about the rollout strategy? One part of your city has something and someone else, uh, and it's basically a patchwork strategy. Any concerns about that? Well, the bigger concern in our case, and I'm sure it's true in some of the bigger cities across the country, is that you're in a region. And so in our case, we're in a region. So Toronto is, yes, the biggest city in the country and the sort of the biggest population center in the region. But there's like several other municipalities around us that have millions of people in them. And they're doing things different than we are because they're different municipalities. And so I think it's hard for people uh, to keep up. And I, and I fully understand that. There's not much we can do about that. I've pulled the mayors together and the communications directors to try to at least compare announcements and, and, and share those things with each other in advance so that you don't get as many conflicting messages all happening at the same time. Uh, but it is uh, challenging when you're in a big, you know, region with millions of people, as is the case in, you know, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, and some of the big cities around the country. Mayor, there is massive pressure on mayors like you to open up. Businesses are suffering. It's been well now over a year since the pandemic was declared. But yet the variants of concern are real. 40% of the new cases in your province of Ontario are these variants. Um, how are you calibrating you know, the reopening versus the risk of a third wave. We're having what amounts to basically daily discussions that take into account not just the health numbers, which obviously are of preeminent importance, but also the psychology of the people, because that's important in terms of how they behave, you know, regardless of what restrictions are on or not on. Uh, the, the region that I just talked about, because we can't operate as an island here. Uh, so right now, at this present time, there are uh, areas around us that are in the same media market uh, that are open and people can easily drive to go shopping or go to a restaurant, which they couldn't do to the same extent. This week, thousands of new shops opened up in Toronto. But so there's that factor. And then 
finally, there's the economy itself. And you have to sort of try and do that balancing act we've been doing throughout the pandemic, which is, well, what is the benefit from a health standpoint of, of maintaining restrictions versus what is the cost to the employees and to the businesses and even to the mental health of people involved in business? Vaccine targets. Uh, do you think you'll be able to meet this June 20th? Because a lot of folks are saying, you know, you, you hear Joe Biden, the president of the United States, saying, you know, people are going to have a, be able to have a backyard barbecue for July 4th in the United States. Will your city be able to at least give 80 percent of people over the age of 16 uh, one vaccine by June 20th? And if so, will you change the protocols in terms of reopening if that happens? Well, I think the vaccine and the administration of the vaccines are key to, uh, you know, based on the success we've had, say, in long-term care and other places, it would appear they really are the key to having a reopening of a whole bunch of things. So, again, all I can say to you is that the success of the vaccination program is tied to the supply and the reliability of supply. Right. And it seems our country has enough contracts and so on to be able to have lots of supply. Then it uh, relates to our ability to get those needles in arms, which I think we can do. And so... I'm an optimist about these things, but look, we're doing this as fast as we can, as fast as possible, meaning the reopening part. Uh, we'll do the vaccinations the same way. If we have to accelerate that, we'll certainly make best efforts to accelerate that as much as we can. But there are a number of kind of conditions that have to be met, uh, including the behavior of the virus, which has proved to be the most unpredictable thing so far of all. Uh, but uh, I'm an optimist about these things, and I think things will be much better uh, in the summer than they are now. Um, but for now, we have to continue to be cautious. I think that's just it's difficult because it makes you unpopular in certain quarters and there are people suffering great sacrifice. Yeah. But I think it's the right thing to do to prevent the ultimate worst scenario, which is another lockdown. All right. I got to leave it there. Uh, Mayor of Toronto, Mayor John Tory, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Evan. OK, that's the perspective from the cities. Let's find out how the provinces are doing. Are provinces confident they can handle the big arrival of vaccines and hit these vaccine targets? And how are they dealing with vaccine hesitancy? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Premier of New Brunswick, Blaine Higgs. Great to have you back on the program, sir. So, so first you have General Fortin uh, late last week urging provinces to ramp up their vaccine rollout, triple, quadruple it in order to meet the targets. Is your province and are the provinces confident they have the capacity to, to handle the deluge of vaccines that are coming and actually get them in people's arms quickly enough? Uh, yes, um, certainly I would say we are. I, I, firstly, I don't think that federally they should be criticizing uh, what our capabilities are. I mean, we've been waiting for vaccines and, and anxious now and very appreciative of them actually coming. But yeah, we feel, we feel right now that we could do, uh, on average, in, in a weekly term, like in the in the flu season, we do about 400,000 in a period of two months. So we can do about 40,000 a week in our case. And and so when I look over the schedule of vaccines, we're looking to ramp from, um, I've got numbers here in front of me that are going from 30,000 a week to 60 to 90 um, when we get into uh, the June. So we have 230 pharmacies that are all geared up that do flu shots every year. Right. And, and they're ready to go. They're all equipped. They just need the supply of vaccines. So, so when in your province will everyone get at least one shot? What's your target? We're targeting mid to late June. Totally vaccine dependent. Premier spoke to the um, Prime Minister on Thursday night. Um, supply is the big issue, as you just mentioned. What was the biggest demand and the concern from the Premiers to the Prime Minister regarding supply? Well, I think, uh, you know, we're all feeling really optimistic about the supply and how okay. quickly, you know, it's ramped up over this past week or so. Not that that was a surprise. We kept thinking, you know, the other two would get approved and then, then it starts to open up. So the commitment seemed to be very solid that this, this ramp up was real. We had solid commitments from the suppliers and that we could count on it. 
and that we could put our, our rules and, and regulations in place to administer them because they were really going to be there. So we, we certainly believe that is to be true. And as, as a result, uh, we're confident in our timelines. Speaking of timeline, it would be accelerated if there was the uh, fourth vaccine approved, the Johnson & Johnson product. Did the Prime Minister give the Premiers any indication as to when the Johnson & Johnson might arrive? Because he said there was delays before. Yeah, no, we, we don't have a commitment on that. And I know that was a question too in previ previous meetings, uh, you know, but AstraZeneca, when it was uh, still pending, because we know they're in the hopper and, and so there should be some idea if all goes well, what's the earliest date and then maybe what could be delayed and what could be a later date. But right now we don't have a commitment on Johnson & Johnson on timing. Uh, but again, it was being optimistic that it would be soon. And, you know, we, we've heard that before about the AstraZeneca a few weeks back, and it was soon. It was imminent within, within a few days. Premier Higgs, i got to leave it there this morning. Thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Have a good day. All right, coming up, should the government implement vaccine passports? And a year after the pandemic, is there a federal election coming soon? The Scrum is next with our special guest, Green Party leader, Annamie Paul. Stay right here with Question Period. of certificates of vaccination for domestic use to decide, you know, if who can go to a concert or who can uh, go to a particular restaurant or engage in certain activities does bring in questions of equity, uh, questions of fairness. There are some people who, because of medical conditions or other reasons, uh, will not be able to get vaccinated. So we know the federal government is in discussions to implement some kind of vaccine passport for all Canadians once you get vaccinated. But how will that work? Is it fair? And will concerns about vaccine safety of the AstraZeneca vaccine or the delays to Johnson & Johnson that we spoke about earlier in the program change Canada's targeted rollout? To talk about that and yes, the smell of a spring election in the air. The Scrum is here. Joining us this week, Joyce Napier, the CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Stephanie Levitz, the reporter with the Canadian Press in Ottawa. And our special guest this round is, of course, the leader of the Green Party of Canada, Anime Paul. Great to have everybody here this morning. Ms. Paul, I will start with you. Uh, the Health Minister, Patty Hyde, who told me earlier in the week that vaccine passports are, quote, a very live issue uh, because it's you know, the Europeans are talking about it. Do you have any issues with this? Do you think it's going to be a, an inevitability? Well, as we mark the one-year anniversary, I have to say that uh, you know, we have seen time and time again uh, marginalized people, equity-seeking groups uh, being left out, left behind, uh, disproportionately impacted. I have a very hard uh, time imagining a way that we could create a vaccine passport in Canada that wouldn't exacerbate those uh, differences. I mean, it really sounds like something out of the Hunger Games when you start talking about who has passports and who doesn't. So I think that we need to stick to the basics. We're struggling enough with the simple things like making sure everyone gets vaccinated as quickly as possible. Uh, and we don't want to exacerbate what already has been an incredibly mm. inequitable uh, pandemic. Yeah, but that's, Steph, it's interesting that, that Annamie Paul says that because there are going to be issues of inequality there. But as Patty Heidi said, the European Union's doing it anyway. Can Canada not do it? Uh, does Canada risk being isolated without these, quote, passports? 
Well, there's a couple of factors to consider, Evan. I mean, one of them is that vaccine passports already exist in the form that, you know, when you travel to lots of places in the developing world or other countries, you need to show proof that you've been vaccinated or have taken the appropriate medication against contagious diseases that are um, in those countries in order to be allowed in. So that's part one. The, the second part is about people coming into our country. Canada is highly dependent on immigration for growth. If we don't get back to historic immigration levels, our economy will not come back. So the question then becomes, what do we do as a nation? Do we require the folks coming to this country to have a vaccine? What about the temporary foreign workers who are crucial in our agriculture right. sector? What are we going to do for them? What if they can't get the vaccine in their home countries? Do we give it to them? There's a lot of ethical questions here about how this vaccine rolls out and what it means to our economy. Joyce, weigh in on your, those concerns. Well, listen, I mean, I, I agree with, uh, with, with Steph. These passports already exist. We don't have to call them passports. And they don't have to be necessarily discriminatory. If you have been vaccinated and you have to travel, for instance, for your job, or you have to travel for personal reasons, family reasons, and the country where you're going wants you to have a proof that you have been vaccinated, as it is in many countries of the world. And the question is not whether it's fair or unfair. The first question is, will it be needed? And if right. the answer is yes, then we have to go about it in right. a practical and fair way. But you cannot Right. Uh, tell people, sorry, we're not going to give these passports, and too bad if you can't be a citizen right. of the world anymore, but, or too bad Joyce, if you Joyce, can't travel. So I don't Joyce, know if that even should be an issue. Or and, and, and Joyce, 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 and, Joyce and Evan, maybe I think we're talking about different things here. I know the passport thing makes us think of international travel. I'm thinking about the people who have a passport and who then get to go and eat at a restaurant or who then get to right. go to a shopping mall, or who then get to go and enjoy those kind of um, luxuries that really we many of us have not had for a long time. We still don't have provinces who have committed to doing what uh, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization has mm -hmm. recommended for stage two, which is vaccinating adults in racialized, marginalized neighborhoods as a priority. And so it would just be a terrible thing to see people getting back to their lives uh, who, who uh, have had an easier time of it exactly because they have access to vaccines yeah. first and have these passports. Yeah, it's a to totally fair point. I, I want to talk, speaking of vaccines, Steph, um, growing concerns about vaccine nationalism from the United States. Canada's got 20 million doses of AstraZeneca we, we expect from the United States. There are already a lot of them in the factory there. They haven't come. Johnson & Johnson, we're expecting part of those 10 million from the U.S. anyway. They've been delayed. Is that a concern that, that maybe the U.S. is going to hold those up? Uh, of course it's a concern. I mean, under U.S. President Donald Trump, right, didn't he say, I am not going to let a, a drop yeah. of anything leave this country if Americans don't have theirs first? And it's ironic or perhaps funny. Maybe Canadians thought it was going to be a little bit different under U.S. President Joe Biden, but he's in some measure just as protectionist as his predecessor. So, you know, I know that, you know, the media have been asking um, Anita Anand, Evan, I think you've asked her, we've all asked her, where are these vaccines coming from? And can you guarantee that we're actually going to get them when you mm. say you're going to get them? And they dodge a bit. I mean, they still stick with their quarterly updates and they still say they're going to meet their target. But the specifics of where these vaccines are coming from, clearly there's got to be some um, angst inside the federal government because they won't answer the question directly. Yeah, they didn't on this show. Uh, Joyce, weigh in on that. Well, you know, it depends. And, and we don't know what the contract that the Canadian government has with pharmaceutical mm -hmm. companies either. Um, that should play into this. 
Um, now, the interesting thing about the AstraZeneca vaccine is they're sitting in, in a factory um, in the States, but the States has not approved it yet. And when we ask the Prime Minister that question, or when we ask the government that question, there are no answers. Have you spoken on Friday? The question was, give, was posed to the Prime Minister. Have you spoken to anybody from the administration or the President himself about this issue? Are you guaranteed that you can get these uh, vaccines that, were, that are part of your contract with AstraZeneca? And the yeah. answer was very vague. So when answers are vague, you always have to wonder if the answer yeah. is no. Okay, uh, before we go, uh, Annamie Paul, you're the leader of the Green Party. Uh, we're waiting for the budget, which we're about to talk about. Uh, there's a lot of talk that, that there's a spring election coming, that budget's been delayed, uh, there's lots of programs. Uh, are, are you gearing up for a, a spring uh, election? And do you think that it will happen whenever this budget is voted on? Uh, well, first, coming back to the vaccines for a second, I, ha I cannot help but wonder whether if Canada had not been more generous with the international community and its neighbours in terms of our own vaccine sharing, whether we might not have been able to put more pressure on President Biden to help us. But we've said everyone here first and no one else until everyone here. And so it's, it's kind of a chicken's coming home to roost with respect to that. Uh, and with respect to a spring election... You know, the pendulum has swung back towards one. Uh, we always have to be prepared. We're definitely getting prepared. Uh, the budget uh, will come, a, a, you know, sometime in April, it sounds like, or perhaps the beginning of May. And I think that that is going to be the, the decision time. I hope, as I hope every single person in Parliament uh, hopes, uh, plans to as well, that we will not be in an election until we are through this pandemic and that we're just going to stick to the business at hand, which is protecting people in Canada. We have a lot of other echo uh, impacts of this pandemic we haven't addressed yet. A lot of people facing eviction because of arrears, for instance. Uh, let's focus on, on that. And, and, you know, there's plenty of time later this year for an election. Yeah, there's, there's the, the long tail of this. We haven't even felt it yet. Uh, all right, I got to leave it there for now. Joyce Napier and Annamie Paul, great to have you. I know, Steph, you're going to stay with us because speaking of the budget, will the new budget be a spending budget or is the latest numbers on economic growth going to change the plan? The Parliamentary Budget Officer Eve Giroud joins us as our special guest next. Stay right here for question period. Why did he spend so much to achieve such miserable results for the health and livelihoods of Canadians? By taking quick and necessary action, we saved millions of jobs, provided support to millions of families, and kept more businesses solvent. With CERB, with flexible EI, with recovery benefits, with wage subsidy, with rent support, with SEBA. So it's been two years since the federal government tabled a budget. A lot has changed in the world since then, obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic. A year of the pandemic changed everything, transformed the economy, wiped out businesses, and forced the federal government to rack up deficits that might close in on $400 billion. But even as vaccines are giving people some signs of hope, so is the economy. After months of job losses, Canada added almost 260,000 jobs in February, blowing away more dire predictions. The unemployment rate, fell to 8.2%. Look, that's still much higher than before the pandemic, but it's going the right way, not the wrong way. So after uh, two years with no budget, and we're the only G7 country to wait this long, what has been the full cost of the pandemic? And what does all this news 
about the federal government promising to spend another $100 billion over the next three years to stimulate growth. Does that have to change now? The Scrum is back to talk about that. Steph Levitz is back from the Canadian Press, and joining her this round is the BNN Bloomberg host, Amanda Lang, and our special guest this round is the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux. Good to see everybody back. Uh, Mr. Giroux, uh, let, just to start with the basics, get the calculator. What's been the cost of the pandemic, uh, and as the economy starts to heat up, what questions remain for the government? Well, based on the government's estimates that have been tabled recently and, and the cost that we know up to date, it's amounting to $326 billion. And that's before any measures that could be introduced in the next budget, whenever that budget is going to be. So it's a very, very important impact. And that's just on the spending side. It doesn't even include the loans and the deferrals of income and the reduction in income, income taxes, for example, due to people being unemployed and businesses being shut down. So it's a massive, massive impact that we have never seen in Canadian history. Yeah, and Amanda, we haven't seen a budget, so this is, I think this becomes the most important document uh, that we've seen maybe in a generation, a budget. What are the big challenges facing this government uh, after a year of the pandemic? I mean, it's extraordinary, Evan, that we haven't seen a budget, and yet I'm getting increasingly sympathetic to the delay for two reasons. Uh, and one is the pandemic is far from over. Uh, the, the rise of variants and our slow rollout of vaccines means we could see a third wave. We could see new lockdowns. The government's not wrong to say, hold on a minute, we may not have new spending. We might just have more COVID spending. And on that point, a lot of businesses that have died uh, haven't had their funeral yet. We don't yet know how bad it is. We won't know until the government support's withdrawn. So for two reasons I would say forget new spending we actually have to keep our eye on the COVID spending it may be with us for a lot longer than the government had hoped. Okay Steph weigh in on that because new spending is a big part of the the, the uh, budget that we've long anticipated as the finance minister Christian Freeland has said she plans to spend a hundred billion dollars over the next three years as we move into the recovery phase whenever that happens what do you make of that? Well, that's $100 billion on what, Evan? I mean, we still don't actually know what they've spent on the pandemic. Vaccines is actually a great example. A lot of numbers have been thrown around about how much this vaccine procurement is costing the Canadian taxpayer, what's going into getting it rolled out to the provinces, all of those funds, we don't know. And so if we're going to cast forward before we've even looked back at what we spent so far, what worked, what didn't, what do we need next? The question becomes, what is the $100 billion earmarked for? Is it, as Amanda said, maybe it's just still more COVID spending. Maybe it's not build back money. The government owes it to Canadians to be really transparent about this. And that's the issue with the budget, right? I mean, we keep saying we need a budget, we need a budget. But government budgets aren't what they used to be. Government budgets do not actually give you a line-by-line -line accounting of what the government has spent on something and how much money it plans to make in return. They are election platform documents. And the delay here is to make this an election platform document. Okay, that is interesting, and, and, and that may help explain this $100 billion promise over the next three years, but Yves Giroux, the economy is actually heating up faster than people thought, right? More jobs, unemployment's falling. Mm -hmm. There's actually concerns about overheating. Um, should the government revisit that promise that, you know, when I speak to them, they say they're not revisiting it, should they? Well, when they made that commitment to spend up to $100 billion on building back better or uh, as a stimulus measure, it was in November. And since then, we've had better than expected employment numbers. More recently on Friday, where we saw a drop in the unemployment rate and a 
over 200,000 jobs being created, which is faster than, than what people expected. So when we released our, our report at the PBO after the fall economic statement, we indicated that at that time in December that the $100 billion might be too much and too late because the economy could have recovered most of the losses that were incurred by the uh, by the COVID-19 pandemic. So with, uh, sorry, with the jobs numbers being better than we expected, uh, the 100 billion over three years might indeed be too much and too late. And uh, while if if it's the, if the purpose is to stimulate the economy, if the purpose is to make structural changes to the economy or deliver on the government's agenda, that's a different thing. But the way it's been presented is to stimulate the economy to return to pre-pandemic level. And in that uh, sense, it could very well be too much and too late. Too much, too late. Amanda, you're nodding your head there. What do you make of that? Well, you know, the big fear, of course, that we see in the market these days is of inflation um, and, and there are signals showing up and where Canadians should fear that are, are in interest rates and mortgage rates, uh, your, the rate on debt. You know, we've been told your debt's OK because it's at such low rates. If the market decides those rates should go up, life gets more expensive and a lot of Canadians simply can't afford that. Uh, so that is a concern that if to Eve's point, if you stimulate something that was already going to grow, you overshoot, you get inflation, and as we all know, that is not a good situation. Yeah, now we should say the bank did hold the rate, uh, but we'll see what happens going forward. Uh, now, Steph, let's talk politics. Uh, Joe Biden, the U.S. president, uh, last week signed this $1.9 trillion relief package. That's a relief package, the biggest in history. That's bigger than the entire Canadian economy, just, which is kind of mind-blowing. But does that give Justin Trudeau cover for his own spending plan when the U.S. president is mailing checks to Americans? I think, you know, what, what it does, and it's to pick up on a point that Eve made, is about what is this $100 billion about that, that Freeland has earmarked, right? Is it about building back better, to borrow the phrase, from the Liberal government, or is it about continuing on with the Liberal agenda? And I think that the government is going to have to make that case very, very clear to Canadians. You, you know, you've seen, Evan, I don't know how closely folks will watch, you know, Trudeau's daily or, I guess, twice-weekly appearances now, where he gives a bit of a speech, an update on COVID. And one of the things he's been doing that I've been watching with a great deal of interest, his speeches aren't all about COVID anymore. He finds a way to yeah. bring in other announcements the government's been making on public transit on safe drinking water for First Nations, on pedestrian access to bikes and paths and trails like the other day. Not saying these things aren't merited, but the question becomes, is this where the Liberals are going? Are they wrapping this $100 billion in a way to fulfill promises they've already made or intend to make on the future? Or is this really about COVID? And then to what extent, of course, for the Biden administration, are they not doing the same thing? They got elected with a lot of promises, a lot of things they said right. they were going to do. And does it get all wrapped up into a neat little bow? All right, uh, we'll be watching whenever this budget finally arrives. Amanda Lang, uh, Eve Giroux, and Steph Levitz. Great to have the three of you on the program, and great to have all of you join us because that is question period for this week. Take good care. I will see you tomorrow on CTV's Power Play at 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel, and we will be back here in seven short and I hope warm days. Take care. <laughs>